sisters, join the resistance. Come on, let's start by talking tactics. Have a pass and match us. Here's how we practice. The last order conversation. David Jason. Hey, everybody, welcome to Pop Culture Continuum. This is John Elliott. This is Patrick Riccardi. And this week we have a special guest, Steve Marcus. Hello. Hey, Steve. And Steve, uh, I, I don't know if you want to give too much away about what you do, but you are uh, uh, involved in pop culture. Oh, sure. So I, uh, I'm i an editor at, uh, at Chronicle Books, where John also works. And um, I happen to have edited the book we did uh, with a fellow named David Belisle, who was Michael Stipe's uh, sort of tour assistant. It was a book of photographs. Um of REM uh, on, I guess, like 2008? Uh, it came out, yeah, I think, it, I'm trying to figure out when it came out. Oh, it would have been the previous tour, though, huh? Yeah. So it would have been It would have been a few tours before that. Um, it, it was, uh, there were a lot of photos of Michael with sort of that makeup stripe across his face. I don't know which tour that was. I think it was Around the Sun. Yeah, that was around the yeah. sun. The the blue the blue thing around is because that was for the uh, yeah, that one yeah. song. Yeah. So he, so so David, um, really great photographer. I've been working with him for a while. A few a few tours, including that one. And um, so we did a book uh, that came out in two thousand and eight. And um, well, that's really always neat. Loved REM. Yeah, it was great. It was really it was a fun it was a fun experience. So. And did you get to meet uh, Michael Stipe or anything? Very briefly, there was a book signing at a book super really great bookstore in L.A. and um, Michael was there and, you know, just like at the level of handshake and he said, thanks. And that was it. But that was a thrill. <laughs> yeah. That's more than I've ever had. That's like, awesome. Yeah. No, it was incredible. Like if 14 year old me like could see me <laughs> now, I would just freak out. Um, it was really fun. Yeah. So and David, the photographer was really wonderful. So yes, here I am. I'm happy to be part of the REM series you guys are doing. Yeah. We're happy to have you. And so, uh, oh, you know what? Sorry, I I forgot to look it up. So we're starting every episode with um, just to prove that REM was alternative. Uh, when in the '80s, at least, we're starting every episode by comparing what else was in the top 100 of of that year, uh, just just so people can get an idea of what REM was an alternative to. So for we're doing Fables of the Reconstruction versus Reveal. And so for 1985, uh, Billboard year-end Hot 100 singles, you've got Careless Whisper by Wham, <laughs> Like a Virgin by Madonna, uh, Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go by Wham, uh, I Want to Know What Love Is by Foreigner, Out of Touch, Hall & Oates, Money for Nothing, Dire Straits, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, uh, Take On Me by AHA, and uh, Can't Fight This Feeling, REO Speedwagon, We Built This City, Starship, uh, many people consider one of the worst song in rock and roll history. <laughs> so that's some context for uh, what was going on when Fables came out. And Steve, uh, why don't you give us a brief uh, bit of your history with REM? Because I think we talked, and I think this was the first REM album you got sure, into. Sure, sure. Yeah, so um, I just started getting into music that wasn't on the radio Weirdly, there was a columnist. I should go check and see who it was in the San Jose Mercury News, a group in San Jose. And he was the pop music critic. And he was really a big fan of the Ramones and R.E.M. And so I went to the San Jose Public Library and checked out cassettes by both of those bands. Um, I think (laughs) 
neither so the Ramones, I think it was Pleasant Dreams, which was a fine starting point, you know, if you've never heard the Ramones. Maybe not the point people would choose. I don't know if I could have understood their first record at fourteen necessarily, but um, the the REM record was Reckoning, which uh, I would I listened to. I didn't really have any records at that point, so anything I had, I'm sorry, is a siren outside the exciting Mission District. So do you need um, shelter? <laughs> ducked. Um, I'm behind the sofa. Um, so the the record that I that I got from REM was um, Reckoning, which was really um, I don't. I don't even know what I thought of it. I listened to it over and over and just sort of tried to absorb what it all meant. And so, with my hard-earned, you know, allowance money, when Fables came out, that was one of the first records that I bought um, with my own hard-earned cash at um, a Musicland branch in Milpitas, California. And I remember um, flipping through the racks and seeing it, the cover, and, and feeling. Um, again, it was like something like I didn't, it was mysterious and I didn't spend active time trying to decode what it meant. I just sort of looked at it and it was the same thing. I think with the record, maybe I just listened to it a lot. I didn't try to unravel it and there weren't devices like, you know, uh, internet lyric databases and there's no lyrics printed on the sleeve, of course. So, um, anyway, I just sort of immersed myself in it and, um, I'm happy to have the occasion. I, I went through a phase where I didn't really listen to REM for a couple years recently, and the occasion of this podcast has been a really happy one because I've gone back for the last couple weeks and listened to everything and really discovered again how much I love it. Um, so, yeah, we've had we've talked about it. We've had a similar experience with it. Although, uh, in the in me and Pat's case, it's almost it's verging on overkill of REM uh, at this point. It, I wouldn't, I would, but not in a bad way. I'm, I'm enjoying every minute of it. It's, but it is a lot at, at, that we're doing all at once. But not only listening, but looking up articles and reading old interviews and just going through decades of REM all at once is, it's fun and nostalgic, but it's also a lot of information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, I feel like um, I'll probably keep cruising with the REM. But for me, for like another week or two, and then I probably put them away for a while again. But um, but yeah, it's been really great, and I um, reveal in particular. I so I was with them up through um, um, New Adventures in Tie-Fi. Like it was the last record that I bought um, up to that point, and then I kind of got to. I'd, I'd have to look, and I'm kind of curious to look and see where my musical taste went after that. Um, but I didn't. I didn't actually own any of their other records until I started working on the book um, that we did. Then I went back and caught up, and I, you know, bought the most recent last two when they came out. Um, but so going back and listening to Reveal was um, really fun. I discovered a bunch of songs that I hadn't really paid any attention to before. So yeah, same here. I mean, I, I, well, we. Wait, we, no, we haven't talked with Will yet uh, officially, but we will talk with Will about new adventures in hi-fi, and uh, I think we're all we were all kind of on the same page. That's kind of where we we all dropped off with REM. Um, I kind of dropped off before that, but it doesn't matter. I mean, I've listened to everything, but I didn't listen to it a lot after Monster. Like I've maybe listened to it a couple times. Monster's the last REM CD where I was. It was I remember it really well. So when we're going through new adventures and up and reveal, it's just like, oh, and it's surprisingly good. Is aside from around the sun, is the reaction I've had with these later REM CDs. 
Yeah, I feel kind of, I mean, especially since I, I kind of wrote them off at the time, um, going back and listening to, like, not necessarily wrote them off, but never really gave them a chance. I think that's what happened with me, too. Not, yeah, not, I didn't say they were bad. I was just like, well, I have other things to listen to, and this is not, this is not out of time or automatic for the people for me. I know for everyone else, it's not Reckoning or Murmur, but I hadn't gotten into them at that point. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think for me, too. But I think Fables, um, Fables was the uh, kind of a problematic album for them at the time. Um, I think a lot of REM fans, well, it was, it wasn't as, uh, bright as sounding as like murmur or reckoning. It was, it was kind of darker and, and more twisty. And, um, and I think Pat, you even said, uh, it's not your favorite. No, but I, I, after listening to it a couple more times, it's, it's grown a little. You told me that, the same thing happened with you and it really did happen with me where i listened the first couple times I'm like i don't get this at all and the more i've listened to it the more i've enjoyed listening to it it's still not up there with the others and i i'm still pretty sure i like reveal more but it, it really grew the more i listened to it the my appreciation of it well you're probably the only person uh on this whole series who's gonna say the preferred reveal to fables sorry <laughs> but we'll see um so have I have, um, I have. Uh, I just want to say I have, uh, which I highly recommend. Uncut Magazine does these ultimate music guides where they'll go and call really smart of them. They'll call old interviews and um, features, and then they'll go and, and do fresh, sort of critical appraisals of all the records of whatever bands. And so I have their issue for REM here, and it was interesting. The John, you were saying, and it's right, they were alternative, but they hit. According to this, they hit 28 on the U.S. I would assume pop charts. I don't think alternative charts were around at that point with this record, which is kind of stunning. Um, and I guess that's because there were enough college stations driving people to go buy records at that point. Yeah, that's really that that does sound uh, strange to me. Um, just at least I've never guessed my memory of them because I'm like their singles, singles from these. Well, can't get there from here. Went to uh, number 110. Um, but on the, uh, oh, yeah, I guess so. U.S. Mainstream Rock, I guess that's the chart. I don't even know. <laughs> that's mind-blowing. Got the 14 yeah, it, and 22. Yeah, weird. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, there was just, there was just enough people, you know, they didn't spike on the charts. There was, like, a enough of a swell. Yeah, and it's not like, I mean, they weren't playing tiny clubs either at this point. I mean, they were playing at least the Warfield here in San Francisco or whatever. So it's not like, yeah, they weren't super tiny. It, they, But but still, uh, at the time, when at least where I was, they were definitely an underground phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, But I think that we said similar things about Murmur and Reckoning. When we look back on them, they were more popular than we re- realized. Like, it got the Rolling Stone record of the year either murmur or reckoning and they got it hit the the at least reckoning hit the that the top 100 billboard charts and i think everyone was surprised by that or i was surprised by that and even uh, i'm looking at now murmur hit 36 on the billboard 200 oh yeah that's it, it is bizarre to think about especially since you never heard them on the radio or anything not mm-hmm. this early um Just and college radio yeah and mtv maybe maybe the cutting edge which I've oh, never yeah. heard of. Uh, you guys talked about it, or we were talking about it in the future, I guess. But uh, So uh, the cutting edge was basically the 120 minutes, just a different version. 
Yeah, and and I think like I will say in the future, um, IRS had some uh, had some involvement with the TV show The Cutting Edge, which was on MTV. Um, I I don't know if they like helped underwrite it or what, but so it makes sense that REM would be on there. But yeah, no, that is that is bizarre. Um, I never would have guessed from the reaction I got to uh, playing REM for people at the time that they were that popular. But, uh, but you were playing it on a banjo, so you got to give them a little credit. That I, I was playing it on a banjo, but I also had the knee cymbals, so I, I think that added a bit. Um, I, I uh, yeah, this, this album was produced by Joe Boyd, who was like an old kind of folky. He produced some Nick, Nick Drake and uh, Pink Floyd, Nico, a bunch of stuff like that. So they went to England, I guess, to record this with him. And uh, from what I remember, uh, I, I didn't actually... Uh, do too much research for this episode but I remember they were kind of depressed at the time and maybe were not so happy being in England and and the album kind of turned darker because of that is this the uh, the album where Michael Stipe talks about where he gained all that weight and shaved his head like a monk or is that a later album I think that was this one yeah it's funny but I still I think it's it's a album that uh, grows on you over time and, and it I usually I usually end up preferring those to the more immediate records. Um, Do you have... Uh, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, I, I think I kind of had your reaction too, Pat, when it first came out, where I was like, oh, this isn't maybe as good as the earlier stuff. But uh, but now, uh, except for, like say, Old Man Kenzie, which is kind of a dirgy song in the manner of uh, Oddfellas Local 151, um, I, I pretty much love all of it. Do you know how they they hooked up with the, that producer? Was his name Joe Boyd to to have him do it? Since he was famous already, how did that? Do you know? Have you have you ever heard any stories of how that came about? Not really. Is there anything in the uncut? You know, I should have thought to read the interview around this time, but I did not read it. Yeah, I have. No, so. I have no idea either. Um, let's see. Dis, despite growing audience and critical acclaim. REM decided to make noticeable changes to its style, including a change to producer Joe Boyd and recording in London. But it doesn't—it doesn't really say why. Um, I mean, I'm guessing because they were kind of—they uh, had a folk, you know, influence in mm-hmm. their sound, and and uh, he was known for kind of folk rock acts. That that that's why they chose him. I mean, who knows? Or so I. So I'm wondering about this. I, I was surprised. I guess it was only in the last few years I realized how often bands that I listen to use scratch vocals when they're recording like the music part of their their um, their songs and albums. And the, the lyricist will go in with a notebook and just kind of bang it out. Like Nirvana did that and Sonic Youth does that, surprisingly. They'll just they'll record tracks and the lyrics come afterwards and they're not necessarily they might have a title. But maybe not, um, and so I'm wondering now, to what extent REM does that? Because this sounds like a real. Um, when I was listening to it, certainly when I was younger, it felt really rural, um, and rec- the idea of them recording it in England is really surprising to me because it does sound. I mean, it's like trains and rushes and folk advice and old men and engineers and like it just sounds southern, you know. Yeah, well, yeah. I think I think on the uh, on the deluxe 25th anniversary reissue or whatever that whatever they've got um, uh, an extra disc of demos and they were all recorded in Athens. Oh, okay. 
So they did. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So so I think the themes lyrically make sense, and and they're the lyrics like change slightly, which I assume they almost always do from demo to final recording. But for the most part, it was everything was intact on the demos. Um, so they just maybe they just thought it would be fun to record in in London. Who knows? It turned they turned out to be wrong. Deadly wrong. I don't know about deadly. Who died? I'm sure a number of people died during the recording of this uh, album. But I, I thought '84 was the year no one died. That was like the the perf- uh, Earth's perfection, and it, we've all gone all downhill from there. It was. I mean, of of course, Reagan reelected. Uh, nothing else you can say about the Earth's perfection. But unfortunately, this was '85. So, well, it came out in '85. Re- well, that is true. Uh, it, but it was also recorded February to March 1985. Foiled. Anyway. I uh, when I was when I was younger listening to it, I thought the first side, um, except as I said for Old Man Kenzie, which I do not care for, uh, was was super strong. But and I thought that the the second side was kind of throwaways. But now, what well, my ha- my position hasn't reversed. I just like the second side as much as the first side now. And I think uh, I I think it is it is darker and maybe more cryptic like more going harking back to um chronic town than than murmur or reckoning but uh i also think it works and and i think um i remember reading a review uh that was dismissive of this album at the time and uh, but and he did mention that he thought it was funny that they would write a song called life and how to live it that's completely indecipherable (laughs) and the lyrics the there are a lot of he hadn't come out uh which i guess he wouldn't until really document maybe life's rich pageant a bit and and started enunciating more so a lot of the lyrics are are more mumbled and and i think the sound the mix is kind of he's more buried in the mix in this one it's all it's very murky sounding i guess mm-hmm. i resisted the the impulse why well, I, I didn't resist I, I i took a brief step into like looking up the lyrics for the album and then i realized that it didn't really matter it never it hadn't mattered up to now so right I just, I just closed the browser window and said, eh, i'm just gonna i'm just gonna not do that right and even with even with the lyrics there in front of you it doesn't matter all that much i mean i i think the it was about kind of the mystery and and uh the lyrics don't really the lyrics don't really elaborate anything necessarily so I read an interview with Michael Stipe where he said that the early albums, the lyrics are basically meaningless because they, they were doing mostly live shows and they would, he would have different lyrics for every show because most of the time people couldn't understand them anyway because the sound systems were so bad where they were playing. So he would every show he'd make up different stuff. So whatever he had on the actual album didn't really have anything to do with what he was singing a hundred times at shows. So because he was responding to lyrical analysis of the early stuff, he's like. Don't bother. Uh, I, I mean, that might be a little bit of myth making on his part too, because I think there are some. It's when you can make out certain lyrics. He there's some cool stuff in there. I, I don't think he put like no thought into them or anything, or or, did, or thought they didn't matter at all. Uh, I think I maybe, believe his myths. I think maybe he was just more. Um, he was just still more not all that sure of himself as a as a frontman and singer, probably could be myths are fun well yeah myths are fun i uh i i won't destroy anybody's cherished beliefs not about rem anyway but do you uh 
should we go into the songs? So, Pat, was since you're more of the newbie to this album, I, I want to get your uh, your take more. Was there any? We each picked one song, but was there were there any other songs that stuck out for you uh, that you can I, think of? Maybe Kahotek. I like that, uh, but Driver Eight was the one that was really stuck out to me of the whole album. But I, I did like. Is that how you say that? Kahotek. Kahotek. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like the sound of that one. Huh, weird. That's one that I had considered a throwaway, like I said, but that I enjoy now very much. Um, yeah, I like that one too. And I, um, uh, well, we'll get to it. But Good Advices has been a song that's kind of haunted me ever since I first listened to the album. And I hadn't listened to this album for years. And I listened to it again, and I got the same weird catch in my throat at a certain point in the song. And um, it was interesting how, how much it still affects me. Isn't that great? I I find yeah. it disappointing when I listen to a song that used to affect me like that and doesn't anymore. But it's so wonderful when there's a song that still does years later. Yeah, it was really exciting. Yeah, I mean, as mentioned before, uh, we built this city. Does it for me too? <laughs> so I I finally watched the new, not the most recent Muppets movie, but the, yeah, God, the, the reboot. The reboot. When I enjoy, I enjoyed the. Re- I just it's hard. I was I was sitting and kind of scoffing when it was on TV, and then I found myself kind of getting into it and um but then god they sung we built this city and yeah I, oh wow I, I, I such a I wonderful to... movie but then they have they have a couple <laughs> bits in it where they do they do covers of songs i think we built the city i can't remember what the other one was and those two could be taken out yeah. and it'll be so much yeah. oh they had the chickens doing um a nirvana song too which is oh, kind yeah, of funny. Uh, That's uh, actually funny, but yeah, yeah, that I could stay in the room for. I get embarrassed vicariously about stuff that's on TV or in movies, mostly TV, reality, really easily. Even if the people on camera have no compunction about appearing the way they do, um, my girlfriend will be watching. Well, she she teaches high school, so she'll watch Teen Mom for reasons of uh, you know uh, many reasons, and I can't be in the room when it's on because I just I flush and I feel sweaty and I'm like God I can't people are oh, maybe her biggest reason do it. <laughs> her, her biggest reason to watch that show is just to have a little alone time <laughs> it may well be it may well be um, or just because it's so utterly compelling uh, yeah uh, I, I I know what you're talking about Steve I can't I can't watch those I mean even even if I'm like uh, homesick or whatever. Uh, which I never am. I'm usually just home because I don't want to go into work and I say I'm sick. But uh, I and like something like Maury or one of those shows comes on. I can't mm-hmm. it. I get so uncomfortable so quickly that uh, that I actually end up being sick and turning my lie into the truth. So I guess it's a win win. Yeah, I can't I can't. It makes me uncomfortable, too, especially I mean, I think even more so when they don't seem to care that they're <laughs> that they're coming off as yeah, yeah. it's hard I, I i can't hate watch in that respect like i can't just sit there and hate those people because the joke's on me like i feel ill <laughs> yeah saying. i have to leave so anyway yeah no exactly um is, is i just i don't mean to belabor it but is teen mom a reality show or is that a dramatic show uh, okay so um so it is. It, it's on MTV, which doesn't broadcast music anymore. Um, and it's a series where it started, I think, as a standalone documentary where they followed a, a few teen moms around with cameras, and they do on camera. You know, they carry, they'd have mics on them all the time. And they would, oh they would wow! Do, 
and they would, they would follow them. And you know, there there have been uh, there have been people who've looked into the effect of Teen Mom, like is it glamorizing or whatever? And if you ever watch it, and there's no reason for you to watch it, but if you ever watch it, you, you one comes away with the feeling like God, I would never want to be a teenager in high school having a kid that looks like the worst, most difficult. It looks terrible. And in fact, it seems like that's the effect that it's had is even though the, the, the teen moms have been signed up and the viewers keep watching them for subsequent seasons of the show. Um, even if they're in their own minds, they're stars to the people who are watching it. It's, it's a cautionary tale. Like the teen, you know, if, if teens who've watched the show when interviewed, they were, they respond by saying, hell no, never, no, um, no way. <laughs> Well, that's good. So, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I was. I think there was a popular show. Maybe it was not on MTV. Maybe MV. And uh, what's that? ABC VH1. Family, like, oh. or maybe VH1. I don't know. But it was like seventeen and pregnant. And I think I was confusing the two. They're very similar. Yeah, Jody also loved that show. She's, it's a genre. It's a genre fandom. If you guys come up with another show and you broadcast it, she'll watch it. So. All right, a show on pregnant teenagers. <laughs> Go for it. I think, uh, wow, that's weird. Well, maybe she teaches high school. Is that what you said? She does. She does. Um, and so uh, I think one of the reasons she's good at her job is she can kind of, she's herself. She doesn't sort of adopt a teacherly like, tone, manner. Tone. Yeah. Yeah. She'll kind of fuck around with them and, and joke. And it's not always like decorum 100% of the time. And, and so I think that that helps and part of that is that she without deliberately being this way you know she she's into teen mom because she's into teen mom it's not like she's she's kind of like teenager brain she has the teenager lobe of her brain is still sparking sort of (laughs) right so So she's not she's not watching the show for research she's watching it because she enjoys it but it also works as research when she talks to the kids yeah yeah she's not she's not like slumming when she's right right well, that's uh, thanks for bringing the podcast down, Steve. I'm glad we have we started a podcast all about Steve's girlfriend. <laughs> oh, me too. We, we'll so this half of the this so, half of the show. Right, here, here. you'll have you'll, you'll have opinions about this. Um, I, I have to confess that I have a really difficult time with. I can't get there from here. It's uh, it sounds almost like a novelty song. I think it's kind of which they they did a couple later on too. I. I know we're not supposed to talk about uh, other episodes, Pat, so forgive me. But um, it, it reminds me. talk about other episodes. Just don't talk about other albums. Oh, right. So I won't. So it reminds me of Out of Time's uh, radio song. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the same kind of like it's like a REM Southern funk song, kind of, with horns. Can't get there, there from here. Yeah, I don't. It was the first single, and, and I think it was obviously they thought it was probably different enough from their sound that maybe it would do something on the radio i don't know but i i mean i think they were wrong to think that i like it do you i don't mind it i i, I mean i like the the whoo <laughs> silly <laughs> i have it, it fits into a category I, I i only sort of recently in the last i don't know five five eight years or so realized that i can't find an exception for myself to the rule that saxophone is not a benefit to rock songs. Yeah. I can't find, I can't find an exception, not even the stooges. Like it just doesn't, I, I can't think of an exception and this is, this is no exception to the no exceptions. 
So other horns are okay, just not the saxophone? Horn sections are fine. It's just the standalone saxophone okay. moment or, or coloration or whatever you want to call it. But. Right. I mean, I think throwing the Stooges in there is maybe a bit misleading. It's not like they're doing uh, Jerry Rafferty Baker Street no, with their sax I, use. No, I, I totally, I, I know, but if you sit and listen to, um, was it Down on the Street? I yeah. Know, whatever, whatever it is with the saxophone and you mentally erase the saxophone, you're, I don't, it doesn't take it down a notch for me. Right. No, it is a, it is a, a bizarre thing that was, as we talked about when we talked about the charts from this year, uh, saxophones were all over the place in the 80s oh, in yeah. rock songs. Uh, Clarence Clemens, R.I.P. But, no, I, I kind of agree. Like, Can't Get There From Here is my probably my second least favorite song on the album, but I don't... Um, for a while, I was just kind of, eh, about it. And now, I, I enjoy it mildly when it comes on, but I don't seek it out. But uh, I, one thing about about can't get there from here i don't know if you remember the video it was uh the first rem video where at least for portions of it they they printed the lyrics to the song as it was singing which was kind of which was kind of cool as an rem fan to figure out what the hell he was saying um sing along if you will Uh, yeah i don't think they had the bouncing ball on it but they might have but let's let's go into your song pats it's 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 the first one uh on the album that comes up, uh, Driver Eight. So, why did you pick this? I mean, it's a great song, and it's a train uh, a train song, which is always cool. Yeah, and I like the deep guitar that goes through throughout the song. That's one of the things I like. I mean, it starts off with a real heavy guitar, and all the way through, and I, I like that. And Michael Stipe's not muttering or mumbling; he, he's much more clear than in previous albums. So, that's pretty much why I picked it. And the train stuff—it's fun. Yeah, I think this is the the one that's for the ages probably from this album. I mean, this is the one that has been on every uh, greatest hits compilation they've released Um, over the years. Like they did, they used to put can't get there from here on as a, as the greatest hits. And over the years, I think they've, they've grown to like, like feeling gravity's pull or life and how to live it more. But driver eight's always on there. Um, Yeah. It's a great song. It is. There's, there's not really a lot you can, or that I can say about it. Um, but, oh, Steve, I should have told you this before we started. Uh, I think our listeners know how, how dumb we are anyway, so it doesn't matter. But uh, So uh, we won't actually be playing the songs. I will I will say let's listen to the song, and then we'll just be quiet for a few <laughs> seconds, and I'll insert so, it later. Moment of silence. All right. No, yeah, no so, <laughs> so that's how it works. Uh, so I'm looking at here. It says Hootie and the Blowfish did a cover of Driver 8. Oh, my. I, I mean, I... <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of wish, wish I, I could erase that last <laughs> section of my life, that last second of my life. I mean, and so did the Walkman, which is, doesn't seem nearly as offensive as Hootie and the Bluefish. So Hootie apparently started a career as a country uh, artist in the way that a lot of, um, I'm trying to think of, the way a lot of African American men have. <laughs> well, in that way, I was thinking like, awesome, like that's that's kind of a that's kind of a great thing. Um, but I'm, I'm blanking on who else has done that. But there have been a lot of there have been a lot of pop artists recently who've realized that country, you know, country listeners are still buying albums, so they've kind of shifted in that direction. He's one of them. He he's he's now a country artist. Yeah, and a fairly popular one, from what yeah, I understand. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And is he like uh, the stereotypical country artist? Is he racist? 
I haven't listened to a note of his country oeuvre, so I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the title of his biggest hit, uh, My People Are All Bad Except Me, probably gives you a hint, Pat. Um, so no. No, he's not racist whatsoever. Yeah, I. it's it's weird. I, I mean, I guess Hootie and the Blowfish was, was as bland as most uh, of the Nashville uh, country... A modern country that I've heard, so it's not it was it's not really that big of a stretch. I I don't think to go from Hootie and the Blowfish to modern country, but it is a pretty big stretch to imagine them doing a cover of Driver Eight. It is, and and I think I'll just continue to imagine it rather than experience the reality of it. I thought you'd play so, that now on so the yeah, RM version. Yeah, John, I think maybe you should we should get a little taste of that. The... All right, you know what. We need. We always throw a song on at the end, so maybe uh, our outro song today will be the Hootie version of Driver Eight. Um, I can't believe I'm going to have to give money to this dude on iTunes. But for now, let's listen to the actual, real version of Driver Eight from REM. Here's Driver Eight. Next up from our picks was was my pick, uh, Green Grow the Rushes, and I think musically, at least to me, it's the most uh, beautiful song on the album. I think it's very, the I don't know that guitar line is like a, a teardrop in my heart, if that makes any sense. Which it doesn't. <laughs> You're such a softy. You're <laughs> such a softy, John. But uh, but. No, I think uh, uh, we talked about, I don't know if we have talked about it on a previous episode or if it will be a future episode, but um, that R.E.M. musically, I think, was very much into into beauty and prettiness uh, a lot of the time, which, which was another reason I think maybe they stood out from a lot of the American underground acts. Um, you know, Paul Westerberg could touch on it here and there, but, uh, but I really do think they were, they were kind of softies musically even though they could rock out and and this one to me it, that's that's all it is it's just pretty and uh and one bit of research i did says that this was the first in a trilogy uh what what michael stipe referred to as the central american trilogy i guess that continued with the flowers of guatemala and then ended with uh, welcome to the occupation um and this one yeah this one is about migrant workers uh from what i can gather so political but but uh, and and it has a great line, I think, uh, amber waves of gain, <laughs> to describe, you know, America and its treatment of of migrant workers. But uh, yeah, it's just the prettiness of it that that appeals to me. You guys have any opinions on this one? 
Um, it really is a beautiful song. It's it's uh, it's another one of those swoony moments when I listen back on the record. Um, I'm glad you picked it. Yeah, Pat. Yeah, it's beautiful. I don't. Yeah. Have much to elaborate. All right. Well, let's uh let's just throw it on then, and uh, instead of us talking about it, here's Green Grow the Rushes. find the hootie version of that too i'll find the hootie version of the whole album um which i assume is is littered throughout his solo catalog and i i don't want to belabor the hootie uh too late discussion but uh i just i was just clicked and i saw that tim meadows had done a, a snl skit where he played darius rucker i just thought that was funny was he singing driver eight because that no. would be even better he was leading the beer-drinking white fraternity members in a counter-march to the Million Man March. Good advices. <laughs> so, yeah, this is this is a song that, um, you know, 14-year-old me obsessing over the record but not really trying specifically to decode it. There's um, <clears throat> the line that he hits, the first time he hits it particularly, where he says, at the end of the, at the, end of the day, I'll forget your name. I'm not sure what he means, but the way I absorbed it was sort of an annihilating comment. It was sort of like, you can just not matter to somebody at a fundamental level. Like, that's a concept. That lyric might have introduced that concept to my brain. Like, you don't necessarily have to matter to somebody. Um, And and so that's still what I hear in it um, without, without effort. Um, and uh, yeah, I get a, I get a catch every time I <clears throat> every time I hear it, and um, uh, it's also a pretty song, I think. It is, and, and so this yeah, it's a weird it's a weird mix. Like I, I have a I have a strange, um, conflicted feeling, maybe not 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 in an explicit way. I have it's sort of a it's a mishmash, I would say, when I listen to it. Well, that's I mean, and and that's one of the the reasons i think they're great is that it i i get the exact same thing out of it. it is it's called good advices too and and it 
does actually contain a list of what I guess Michael Stipe considers good advice. You know, when you meet a stranger, look at her shoes. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how practical that advice is or what it's supposed to do for you, but it is actually advice on some level. But then, yeah, the it, it gets to that at the end of the day, I forget your name, which is also where I think it gets uh, the prettiest musically. Mm-hmm. It's um, true. Which is a, a nice contrast. Um, yeah, that is, I mean, and that is a, a concept that is that probably will hit you when you're 14, I guess. Oh, uh, God. With, with yeah. a lot of force, yeah. So I had a... Uh, now I've remembered uh, when I was listening to it again for the podcast, I would you know I'd sit in my room alone listening to music, and my mom would come in every so often, and you know, and I had the Beatles on, and Nowhere Man was on, and I made some sort of comment that I didn't mean in any significant way. It was something to the effect of I either identified with, or I understood, or I really liked the song, or I, and it, so there was a moment where I expressed empathy or sympathy or understanding for Nowhere Man, and she immediately kicked into mom nurture mode she's like no no you're very special <laughs> and you're not and i didn't mean that i mean i meant that in a way like i i did mean it but i didn't mean to announce it in a way that required a bandage you know right um, right yeah and it was just like i was kind of surprised and i'd forgotten that until until i just listened to this album you know, <laughs> recently for the anyway that's that was me sitting alone in my room thinking of you know annihilation personal <laughs> annihilation um well that's, here we are now that's the difference between our mothers right there because when uh, i was listening to no man nowhere man and told her that i identified with it she she told me i'm glad at least you attained some level of self-awareness anyway pat your thoughts on uh i don't remember my mom saying anything about nowhere man well i, I guess you uh, that that's a form of child abuse and maybe she should be reported but your thoughts on good advices? I agree. This is Pat's. Uh, this is Pat's go-to statement when he has nothing to say. He agrees. You did? Do you? I did like it. Uh, it was one of the ones that took a couple listens before I liked it, though. I didn't. It didn't hit me right away. So I think it was a little slow, maybe. Uh, it is one that I think if you speeded it up a little bit, and uh, it would be a lot more uh, pop-friendly. And because it's got a really good melody and everything, and I think, I think yeah, that the the uh, tempo of it maybe puts people off a little at first. And I, I get, it, it just goes to, for me, some music doesn't hit me on the first listen, which is weird because that makes it harder to know what I like and what I don't like. Yeah, well, and it's I mean it's a different time now where where you're you don't have a limited allowance and. And you're not going right. to the record store and buying like maybe a couple of records at a time and obsessing over them for weeks. Yeah. Um, you're just buying songs and making yeah. your own mixes. So, but uh, yeah, let's listen to a bit of good advices. Here it is.
and we've uh, we burned through the first half of the episode. So uh, I like what REM. I I've been noticing that for I don't think I noticed it back then. Maybe because I had on most stuff on CD later, but they always had funny names for the different sides for their albums. And this one was A side, was side one, and side two was another side. Yeah, and they would have like fire and ice or whatever. Um, yeah, they. I mean, they were kind of. They were the pavement of their day, I guess. You think, Steve? Is it an apt comparison? They, they were definitely cryptic, and they had stuff you needed to decode if you were so inclined. Um, so, and they could be ironic. I don't know. Yeah, Michael. They certainly got ironic later. Like the later albums are certainly like irony dripping at times. But yeah. Yeah, I think I think he was definitely much more uh, sincere back back in the IRS days. Although. I don't know. He also, I mean, can't get there from here no matter what you think of it. At least it shows a, a sense of humor, uh, which is more than you can say of you 2 at the time. But um, you guys want to take a quick break before we go into Reveal? Sure. Okay. Okay, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. We had a comrade, a brave comrade. Could talk for whole days, but then he tried to be a hero. Tried talking about Shamiro to computers wearing earphones. Oh. He almost died for conversation, hallucinations, good vibrations. Van Dyke Park's greyhound racing, steeple chasing, the Reformation, transubstantiation, Brian Stoker's creation. All right, we're back, and now for Reveal. Um, and I think, actually... All right, here's here's my takeaway from these two albums. I think these albums are... They kind of go well together because, to me, they're both mood albums, although for an entirely different mood, I would say. What, do you guys have any thoughts? Like, Reveal, to me, is like a hazy summer feel. Uh-huh, I would agree with that. I, I was listening again you know, and again to it, there's a lot of uh, sort of nature references, which I thought was an interesting, like you said, like an interesting pairing and, and um, there's a feel to it. And then um, in fact, gravity is in both of the first songs. There's a, I wrote it down. Oh yeah. The lifting. Yeah. There's the first, the first verse or whatever of, of lifting um, grounded 5am night light comforting, um, but gravity holding you down. Yeah. That's the first. Oh, that's yeah, that's crazy. That, I didn't even make that. I thought that was a nice nice bookend, yeah. Yeah, this one, I mean, I think they mentioned Summer about 57 times in the lyrics, <laughs> and like Dragonflies even a couple times. Yeah, a couple times. I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say this might be the only album that mentions Koi Fish, uh, <laughs> in English, at least. <laughs> but Yeah, Beach Ball. Yeah, at, yeah exactly. Um well, even a song called Summer Turns to High. Although, I mean, I think, like, maybe Summer Turns to High and Chorus in the Ring are, are probably not songs that people yell out for them to play at concerts. Um, but overall, I think the album's much better than I gave it credit for at the time when it first came out. Because I, th- I think I listened to it maybe two or three times and just totally filed it away. 
Pat, is this one that you even were listening to at the time it came out? Or No, I, I maybe yeah. once. I don't even think I bought it. Uh-huh. I might have listened to someone else's copy, something like that. Yeah, it was so, a similar thing for me. I listened to it maybe a couple times, and it, I, didn't, I didn't even get a chance. Um, and so it's nice to come back to it. Yeah, I, I really like it. I, I'm kind of curious about this. Have, have you guys heard this remix, R-E-M-I-X, the yeah. remix album? Is that any good? It's it's remixes. I mean, you know, I I those are never great in my opinion. I sometimes I like them. But, you know, I guess it depends on who's doing the remixing. Yeah, like they have some good people, like Her Space Holiday and stuff, do some remixes. Wasn't uh, there? There is a, a Verve collection that they did a remix of like ten years ago that was really really fun. Do you remember that? Like Verve Records. Yeah. Yeah, I thought you meant the band, the Verve. No. Um, yeah, they did like three. No, yeah, they did like three different Verve remixed albums. Yeah, I, I only, I, I like the first one. I have the first, like both unmixed and remixed, and then I just was like, okay, this is enough. I, I don't need to get all three, but I like the first one a lot. Well, I also think jazz lends itself to being remixed more than uh, yes, Reveal more, yeah. by R.E.M. does. Yeah, it's true. Because um, it's really, I mean. I think they just did it because they have the chance to have R.E.M. I.X. Yeah, gotta gotta get that in your career at some point when your name's REM. Um, yeah, it, it, to me, it seems kind of obviously like they're trying to do an updated version of Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, mm-hmm. um, which is not a, is a you know, I mean, it's a noble ideal to strive for, but uh, certainly on beat a beat a beat a drum, I would y- say. Yeah, and I well, I would say well, I'll talk about it on my pick. I thought my pick was was too. Um, but but overall i mean it's it's definitely there's nothing rocking on here but it's it sets it it tries to set a mood and i think it succeeds and uh and when i'm in that mood i will i will put it on in the future i think mm-hmm. so i think it succeeds on those terms i i mean it's not nobody's going to say it's their favorite rem album i don't think i wouldn't think so yeah but it's definitely not bad no, it's it's not their worst and not their best. Yeah, and and even REM's worst is better than a lot of other people's stuff. So, and I I think uh, all the way to Reno, I really like that song, and I think that would put be up there with some of their best songs. Mm-hmm. I know it was. I like. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say I know it was Peter Buck's favorite uh, song for a while after they recorded it. But what were you gonna say? Oh, I was going to say, I, I enjoy that one too, and I'm glad. There are a few songs that I'm taking away from this record, and when I come back, I'll probably pick you know, pick through, and that's one of them. And But, you know, speak of irony, I don't know exactly what he means, but, you know, going to Reno to be a star is... Um, yeah, no, I think that was yeah. totally a joke, supposed to be a yeah. joke. Yeah. Um, what, what I thought was interesting, um, just listening again, and I did, so I did look at the lyrics for this one, because there's no... Not that there's sanctity with the other one, but it doesn't, there's nothing, you know, why not? And um, so, um, so all the way to Reno is sort of cynical about somebody trying to position themselves. And then the very next song, um, she which just is, wants to be, she just wants to be, at least as far as I spent the effort decoding, it seems a lot more sympathetic and earnest about somebody striving to get somewhere. That was, an yeah, well, I mean, I think it, it, comes down to what are you striving for if, if it's to be a star I, I think it uh you can understand why he might sneer at that a bit but if you're trying to improve yourself as a person or or get you know better yourself in life then that's a worthy goal 
I think I think you've uh, I think you've identified it. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that sounds right to me. Well, should we? Uh, and to go back to the Muppet movie, it's much like when Gonzo <laughs> wanted to go to Bombay to become a movie star. Well, we will be doing a Muppet movie episode uh, coming up at some point, Pat. And so maybe we should try to stick to you know the the topic here. You, you're always you're always yelling at me for going off topic. And uh, and here you are leading us down the primrose path to hell. Well, I, I never consider any Muppet-related uh, conversation to be off-topic. That's true. It they, it is kind of you can. It's like Seinfeld. You can relate it to anything. In it's life. yeah. It's it's the universal. It's the universal language. But all the way to Reno, I agree. I I like it. Um, I like the. I don't even know what you call that style of guitar. Does anybody know? Is it got like tremolo on it or, or what? It's kind of like a loungy spy guitar. Yeah, I don't. I have no idea what it's called. It's nice though. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Burt Bacharach-ish e kind of. But no, it is a. It is a good song. I don't know that I'd put it up with uh, their best songs, but definitely from from later period, it's it's a it's a strong one, and especially from this album. Um, I mean, if you're going to pick the 25 best, I guess it would be there. I don't know. I, I don't have a number in my mind, but I just, I just right. like it. So. No, it is, a, it is a good song. And uh, and let's see, was this... It, I'm was guessing that the it, single? It was a single. Uh, there were Actually, there were a few singles. I'm, I'm trying to see if the single actually charted. Um, which it didn't I, chart in the U.S. I'm surprised it charted in the U.K. Yeah, but that, not in that the makes US. sense. Does yeah, it? Chart, so chart... Chart position here. It's U.S. number six in the U.K. for the album. U.S. Uh, number six in the U.K. Number one. Number one in the U.K. Yeah. Well, they do. They do but, love their Beach Boys over there. But for the single, it didn't even for all the way to Reno. It didn't even chart. Uh, what do they know about Reno? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, they got Blackpool. No, in U.K. it did chart. Oh, you guys are saying they 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 listened to it. Oh, it did. They don't know oh, about no. Reno. no, I thought it. I thought it didn't chart there. I've never been to Reno. Have you guys been to Reno? It's uh, yeah, yeah. I've been. Is it nice? Define nice. Uh, enjoyable to be. No, at. I would say no. I found it a bit depressing. What is your experience with it, Steve? It's it's a second rate. It's a second rate or third rate Las Vegas. I haven't been to Atlantic City, so I'm assuming it's Las Vegas and Atlantic City then Reno. Yeah. That would that would be my take on. Uh, I would say maybe even Macau, Las Vegas. Oh, Macau is amazing. Yeah. yeah. No, so it's it's Macau, Las Vegas, Atlantic City. I thought maybe it was nice because Tahoe is supposed to be beautiful. So I just assumed maybe Reno was nice too. Tahoe is beautiful. Reno is. Uh, I thought Reno was near Tahoe. It is, but you know, I don't know. It's like the Reno's other side. Fun. It just. You know. San Francisco's nice too, but it's also near a bunch of bullshit. So. I think it's the I same like thing. Oakland. So let's listen to All the Way to Reno, uh, in parentheses, you're going to be a star. Here you go. Challenge the laws of chance 
So your pick, Steve, was... So I want to go on record and say I like Oakland, too. I oh, like but... Oakland quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Lest, lest, lest our listeners become uh, uh, misled on that fact. I think we all love Oakland. Yeah, I, I mean, I think those of us who live in Oakland are... When people badmouth Oakland, we're like, great, stay stay out. We're cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have a problem with it. I kind of I like Oakland's underdog status. Although more and more it's just turning into uh, San Francisco Junior, at least if you're trying to buy a house or something. Aren't you surprised it took that long? Because it seemed like San Francisco's uh, housing has been expensive for, for 25, 30 years. But it seems like Oakland hasn't, hasn't risen as much as it should have being so close. Well, I think, I think this current tech boom is so huge that uh, – and, and there are so many young people um, coming into the city and, and – not just not wanting to pay those prices that Oakland, I think it's just a numbers game. Basically it's, it's the sheer number of new millionaires and, and whatever that are. And, and San Francisco that. has been so gentrified that there's nowhere else to go. Yeah. I mean, San, San Francisco's fairly gentrified, although there's, there's still, you know, there's still pockets of, uh, of places where it's really cool. Um, Did you oh, ever yeah, make so it I, to this? Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Steve. Oh, well, so I live at the corner of 24th and Valencia here, and so it's like epicenter for the Google, Apple, whatever, bus culture. Onslaught. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and I've, I've been here for about 17 years, and so I, you know, I've seen, I saw the first boom and, you know, been there um, for a while. And so, when if I want to get north to south, I'll walk up and down Mission Street, or if I just want to take a walk and go look at something interesting, I'll go down 24th Street. Um, Valencia is just overrun and I so this weekend I went to Oakland I guess it was on Telegraph it was in her 20th there's there are a bunch of beer gardens that have opened up around there and one of them notably it's called Lost and Found in the last month or two and that sort of thing doesn't seem to be happening here um, or somebody it's, it feels a little scrappy but you know cool and, and there's some effort to create uh, something interesting and, and, the, and the wherewithal to do it being able to, you know, maybe it's because there's still bombed out turf in Oakland that somebody could open something up like that. Because I guess it was a, it was a, I for, now I'm forgetting what it was before it got turned into a beer garden, but it was like a, it was like a gutted building. Well, no, that's, that's exactly what it is in Oakland. There's tons of bombed out turf um, and developers are, are moving. I mean, we've got, we've, yeah, it, it's true. Like a, a, billion new restaurants good restaurants it seemed like have have opened up and and bars and stuff uh just in the past few years so uh i I don't know how long it'll last because with with housing prices going up here and and or real estate prices in general um maybe we'll hit a we'll hit a tipping point but well reno will be the next frontier everybody will move to reno they they will If, if they want to be a star sure 
but Steve's song is yours was I guess the bigger hit of the uh, singles release on this album, which is not really a surprise because it's kind of almost the same song as the Great Beyond, which came out the year before, or a couple years before. Um, but Imitation of Life, why did you pick this one, Steve? So yeah, it's got that soaring quality that that you know I think any of us who really I don't speak for everybody, speak for myself, that as a one of the things I really like about REM. Um, I, there are probably different categories. I like the brooding stuff and whatever, but occasionally I just want a good soaring chorus in an REM song, and that, this one has it. Um, it's also got that kind of got that one I love thing where the lyrics are a little bit equivocal about upbeat, downbeat, you know, um, which I think I think is nice. I only discovered that by looking at them today. And um, another thing that I liked is a coincidence. John and I talk about movies a lot, and um, I realized recently that I'd never seen a Douglas Sirk film, and um, so I put that on my list of uh, the public library system. It's great here, and so I put them on the like the you know all that heaven allows and magnificent obsession. And um, so, *Imitation of Life* is a Douglas Sirk film, and I would assume that that's where Michael Stipe got, got the, the reference. Title. I'm sure, yeah, yeah. 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 I, is, I don't, I don't du- know that the lyrics have anything. I don't know if the lyrics have anything to do with the film because I haven't seen it doesn't seem so but maybe the feel of the song but is is he a director or actor i have never heard of douglas sirk yeah director director he did okay. uh, um oh brother yeah if you don't know uh all that heaven allows i guess is was the big one was uh, it's like color, written on it's the wind like, i think that's right yeah so it's like saturated color um sort of famously um rock hudson in his you know heterosexual mode oh, you know, okay. in the okay. you know he's the he's the you know he's the male lead in these like technicolor suburban swoony um films todd haynes uh was it far from heaven yeah yeah so todd haynes which i haven't seen i need to put that on the list too apparently his douglas cirque influenced film um was called far from heaven it took that sort of oversaturated melodramatic feel yeah, super melodramatic feel, and also themes, even. Uh, the theme of the movie was very Douglas Sirk, because I think it, there was a, a Douglas Sirk um, picture that was that was basically that story as well. I'm just looking at all the, the movie posters, and even that's putting out what you guys are talking about, so it's, yeah. it's interesting. I should look around for one of these just to see what it's like. Yeah, Criterion's put a couple of them out, and, uh, and I think they're actually releasing, I think, All That Heaven Allows on Blu-ray soon. I, be- I believe so. Yeah. 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 No. So that's, yeah, it's a, and Michael Stipe obviously, uh, owns or owned a film company. So he's, he's into it and art. He, there's no, there's no doubt. He, he was alluding to the movie with the title. Um, I, yeah. have you guys heard the new Michael Stipe songs or are they just about to be out? What's the deal with those? Uh, well, I, I haven't, yeah, I, I read about, he did a song for some soundtrack or something or songs, but they're, they're instrumental. So I don't really know how that, Oh, okay. Yeah. How that, works or if that's going to appeal to REM fans so much Um, i actually didn't i actually didn't realize he played an instrument i don't is he credited ever on an on an album no it's always just lead vocals right yeah and i don't think he actually does play an instrument so um but you know he just wrote the music yeah yeah oh okay sure sure when i when i was in a band i played drums i didn't play any real instrument and uh (laughs) when i wanted to write songs i would just hum them to the guitar player until he got it Uh. and got the sound (laughs) i wanted so I'm sure Michael Stipe's in much more of a position than I was to get that kind of shit done. 
but I agree with you. Uh, very soaring chorus, um, but then that, like you were saying, that that undercurrent of maybe melancholy is there in the verses, especially with like the the string arrangements and stuff. Um, so yeah, it's it's a, but it, also sweet verses. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And, and, and I don't mean sweet. I mean sweet with sugar and cinnamon and I forget what else. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. Candy cane, maybe. Yeah, no, Candy I can't remember. Um, and and good uh, good vocal work by Michael Stipe too. I think in the chorus with the all the melismas and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, let's let's take a listen. If people aren't aware of this one, here's "Imitation of Life." see the other single from this album was I'll Take the Rain which is a nice song as well um, but my pick is the last song on the album Beach Ball which to me sounded like the, the best realization of uh, Beach Boy's Pet Sound song even though it's got you know, the, well the whole album kind of has the like hey let's loop things in Pro Tools here's some uh, Here's some weird mechanical sounds and or little blips and bleeps to throw in the song or uh, electronic drum sounds or samples or whatever. Uh, it's got it's got that in it, but I think it also I mean, Beach Ball is the perfect name for it, in my opinion, because it it sounds like a day at the beach. Uh, to, as far as I'm concerned, their best their best impression of the Beach Boys, this song and not a song I think they ever played live or anything. I wonder how they chose that kind of thing, what they wanted to play live, just stuff they enjoyed doing live, I guess. Stuff they liked playing. I mean, who knows? It's it's always a weird thing when you see uh, artists you like a lot live, and they'll play, they'll always play a certain song, and you're like, why this song? This I this is not your best work, but you know, they people fall in love with their own stuff for their own reasons, and you know, yeah. it may be something about the time they recorded it. Uh, meant something to them or whatever yeah i don't know it's a it's a good question i'm i don't think rem was necessarily playing songs to appease fans because they didn't need to um 
Do you so, think any band needs to? I, yeah, I think like when you're going out to see the latest incarnation of Journey, yeah, um, people okay. aren't people aren't wanting to hear the deep cuts. The State Fair, right? The State Fair crowd's not not looking for deep cuts. Um, I saw a concert at um, I forget the name of it. I don't even think it's there anymore. I think it was somewhere in the Bay Area, a horse race track in uh, near Redwood City, and they weren't allowed to have have songs being played while the horse races were going on so they would have to stop and then start up again after the horse race was over it was it was kind of a funny place to be it was kind of a retro thing it was like probably in 2005 somewhere around there and it was uh maybe susie and the banshees all kinds of 80s acts i forget all all everyone who was there but it was it was funny wait i Really enjoying the concept of Susie and the Banshees stopping while the horse races. <laughs> Me <going> too. <laughs> that, that sounds yeah. That that sounds like a dream I've had. <laughs> oh man! So I I want to say uh, it, I, I don't know if state fairs need defense, but in defense of state fairs, I saw Joan Jett play. It was the Marin or Alameda County Fair, and she wasn't phoning it in at all. And it was great. It was really fun to see all the hits with a bunch of sunburnt drunken people who knew all the the it was just it was good fun yeah and she 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 yeah she wasn't just cashing the check it was it was a good time yeah i had a well, yeah i think joan jett is a, a different level than uh, the journey cover band or no it wasn't <laughs> whoever whoever exists in journey that's cool no, yeah i have i have a couple friends who who went to that specifically to see joan jett i think it was marin that they went to um and yeah you wouldn't expect joan jett to phone it in She's doing yeah, something now around here. There's there's some other big act. I can't remember whose of the story is useless, but she's there with the other big act. You could always uh, I've got say it's Bon Jovi. Yeah, so you could you could pay. I remember I paid to see. I've paid to see openers before in my time, and then walked out on the main act. <laughs> I the, the implication of of the ad I heard was that she was on stage with whoever the boring main act was. Oh, at the same time. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's no good. I saw Weezer open for live. I enjoyed Weezer a lot more. Uh, well, I mean, that's not surprising because live was pretty terrible. At the time, I really liked them. It was like uh, sophomore year of college, and they were playing the 930 Club, so it was exciting. And they, and they were hometown boys for you too, right? Aren't they from well, Pennsylvania? It was in it was in D.C., so kind of, I mean, kind of close. York is far from everywhere where they're from. It's kind of the uh, Pennsylvania. Well, um, to get back into music that's not terrible, let's listen to... I like Weezer. Beach Ball. Here you go. Dance the rock, 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 
I have a question. Yes. Is Pennsylvania a real place? No. It's, is, is that a coinage? All right. It's the offensive That's... thing people say about the area between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. Uh, I guess right. in California, it's like, what do they call Prunedale? They call it Pruntucky or... Prunedale? Right. I feel, now, I, now I feel guilty enjoying the, the coinage, but... Um... I enjoy it. Yeah, it's like it's like Podunk, which also actually exists. Why do you feel guilty? I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes I get tired of laughing at people. Sometimes don't you? Oh, don't you ever? Don't you ever feel like I'm just being an asshole? I don't oh, know. I'm not Sometimes laughing I... at them. It's just that Central Pennsylvania tends to be kind of racist. I mean, it's the the biggest. So maybe I'm really making fun of K- Kentucky because at one point. Oh, the... I think you are. Yeah, yeah. So, because so I'm sorry, Kentuckians. Please keep listening. And there is very nice areas in central Pennsylvania. In fact, one area I'll be going to next weekend, State College, is a great area. Well, I agree with you, Steve, on that. Uh, yeah, sometimes you do feel like an asshole laughing at people. I mean, it's yeah. it's, it's easy to laugh at people. It's, there's really nothing, no intelligence behind it, laughing at, at people who are doing something dumb. Rather, But I'm, I'm kind of more like you with the, with the wincing, like where... I, you you should be feeling empathy for people, really. Uh, if you're if you're a decent human being, I think. Yeah. You should at least be striving for that. Um, and so I you guys don't like jaywalking. Oh, the Jay Leno segment, where they ask people and they show the people who gave no. See awful that answers. that kind of stuff does make me uncomfortable too. It does. It I I'm really uncomfortable with that stuff because I think I'm as I'm watching is how about all the people who got it right? Can't well, we see them? That's Can the thing see? too. It's it's and this so guy, heavily edited to find the very few people who don't know what he's talking about. And the the ten questions of this guy who obviously answered the one question wrong. How about showing them? He's not an idiot. He has kids that love him. Anyway, <laughs> so I uh, I haven't seen jaywalking, and I have to admit I am generally uncomfortable. Even on the Daily Show, where they'll interview somebody who's obviously in need of a takedown, and they'll make them look dumb. And I so I appreciate the good work they're doing, but I can't watch it. Um, however, I think it was Jimmy Kimmel when and interviewed people. Um, That's basically the same thing as jaywalking. At, at, Okay, so in and around, in around or related to Coachella or something, and he made up band names, and he was like, oh, "I'm really looking forward to the, you know, the Tearful Kittens." What, what do you think of their? And people would like, "Oh yeah, I have their first album," or "Oh, you know," they would just go along. And so when it when it was at that level, I uh, that was fun. But I still feel bad for those people. Uh, well, <laughs> me, but, too, me too a little bit except that they're they're only doing it in a completely self-aggrandizing way so it's not yeah it's not nearly yeah as... but I, I feel like oh we're on TV let's look good for TV but yeah I guess it's they're trying to put themselves make themselves look better yeah I, I kind of like I draw the line at the Daily Show stuff that doesn't necessarily bother me so much because a lot of the times they're just letting them hang themselves with their own rope rather than true rather true. than Mocking them. I mean, I I don't see them mocking them so much mercilessly until they start. Well, Steve, what do you feel about the the Colbert thing? The better know your district. Oh yeah, have you seen that, Steve? I, I have, and yeah, those are rough. Also, oh, um, I love this. I'll watch. Yeah. So I can't. I, I can't watch. It depends on how in on the joke they are. I would say. Um. So maybe I've, if they're completely out, out of the joke, I'm I'm more inclined to go walk in the kitchen and you know those are the ones I really like. Yeah. Yeah. No. I I mean I'm definitely with you on that. That's why I don't like 
April Fool's Day and and like pranking people and stuff like pranks me, are the worst yeah, the whole culture pranking it's not even i mean i guess it, it is technically humor but like you're just you're just getting your laughs at somebody else's expense at their misery lying I, to them yeah i yeah i find that really mean spirited um although i i do like pranks where like somebody takes someone's office and glues it to the roof oh yeah yeah that I, that's just <laughs> that's just good clean fun yeah. um but i uh, I guess we're uh, we have actually wrapped this up. This is like our our seven millionth uh, REM podcast, Pat. And I, uh, uh, in, in our, what are you talking about in like uh, alphabetical order? No, or I mean I just mean we've wrapped this episode up. I mean, when you say seven million, I'm just trying to figure out how you came up with that number. That's count, different counting number. microseconds. Uh, my uh, okay, I have six hundred. Uh, well, we've we need both need uh one of us needs a better iphone calculator um but steve we usually will do uh some kind of pop culture recommendation we're not necessarily doing them for the rem podcast because it's too much but if you've got something uh that you want to recommend feel free uh the thing that i the the most enjoyable recent pop culture the experience that I had was going to see a silent film at the San Francisco Silent Film Festival, which is not applicable probably immediately to many listeners, but I would just encourage you generally, if you haven't done especially, go and something's playing in town, go see a silent film with a with a live accompaniment. It's um it's it's a really great experience. So what kind of live accompaniment did they have? Was it like uh postmodern or was it like classical instrumentation and so I've interestingly enough, the the San Francisco Film Festival will have, um, uh, I guess you'd call it postmodern. So like Superchunk would do live music to a silent Japanese film, or Yola Tango would do music to a French underwater, you know, documentary filmmaker's work. Um, Deerhoof did one one year. Stephen Merritt. Um, but what I saw was at the Silent Film Festival, where it's a little more. Um, uh, indigenous so um, there would be a musician or musicians in this case it was a, a pianist and a drummer who played um, a score a loose score that they'd written to um, uh, a silent Japanese film from 1933 and um, it was fun to be in an auditorium well, it was also at a great theater here and I would guess in your town anybody who's hosting one of these is going to have it in a space that is um has uh, good acoustics. And, yeah, and kind yeah. of graces the idea of going out and seeing a film like this. So um, so this was at the Castro Theater in San Francisco, which is a great theater. And yep. um, it was fun yeah. to be there with a lot of people who were excited about, you know, an, a an afternoon matinee of a silent Japanese film. And the, there's just kind of an energy there. And the the music was – it was a it was a fun way to experience. And I, I'd seen silent films before, but um, hadn't for years. And it was a kind of a revelation. Yeah, I saw Metropolis with an organ one time. Oh, that's awesome! That's cool. Cool. Um, yeah, I'm not. I do not have a uh, recommendation. Although I will say, uh, Fables versus Reveal. I I'm going with Fables. I think you're going with Reveal, Pat. Yeah, first first few listens, but Fables was catching up pretty quickly. So, but yeah, Reveal. And Steve, I will just assume Fables for you. It just it's just imprinted on me, yeah. I would yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of in our DNA, I guess, at this point. Um, all right, well, uh, 
Oh, write write to us at popculturecontinue at gmail.com if you have anything to say, if you'd like to be on the show or any other reason. Like us on Facebook. Rate us highly on iTunes and tell your friends. Tell all your friends that this is uh, the uh, pop culture editor from Chronicle Books' favorite podcast. Yeah. That, that's got to mean something. Yeah. You're going to get the, the Marcus bump. The Marcus bump. <laughs> I've been waiting for it. I mean, I've kind of got the Marcus <laughs> bump in the office a few times, if you I, know what I mean. We, yeah, uh, we've off the rails here. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, rate us on... Just go give us... You don't have to write a, a rating or a review. Just rate us. Give us like five stars on iTunes. Uh, come on. What, who gives a fuck? Well, I think shit? most important... The most important thing is tell your friends. The more people we listen, that listen, the, the the better. Or don't. It doesn't really matter. Just enjoy yourselves. Yeah, nobody cares. Live your lives. Who are we? But uh, thank you for coming on, Steve. This was, this yeah, was, was really fun. fun. That was Thanks a lot. And, uh, come back anytime. Yeah, if you've got ideas for something you want to do, please. You're welcome back anytime. Um, awesome. Thank you. Sure. So until next time, we'll say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Machine. I knew he must have been about 17 He was drunk, playing my favorite song And I could tell it would be long that he was with me Yeah, me! And I could tell it would be long that he was with me Singing at some old song, yeah, with me, singing. Oh.